please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to another perspective, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 1986 Air Force Academy graduate who went on to become an extraordinary B-1 leader and commander, B-1 pilot, excuse me. Uh, with experience in many aircraft, including the EC-135 and the B-1, he graduated weapons school, accumulated more than 4,200 flight hours, and even received the Distinguished Flying Cross. Beyond his time flying, he has had plenty of time in command positions, most notably as commander of the 3rd and 8th Air Forces, as well as the vice commander of Global Strike Command. He currently serves as the 21st Superintendent of the United States Air Force Academy. Ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant General Rich Clark. Hey. All right, Corm. Good to see you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for welcoming me to uh, the Soup's office. This yeah. is my first time here, and hopefully... Um, the only time I'll be up here, at least for good reasons, of course. Oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> well, for some people it is, but most of the time it's good. It's good. So first I have to start by thanking Officer of the Superintendent, uh, Captain Bryant, Captain Trueblood, as well as um, Captain Davis. She oh, helped yeah. me recently yep, with yep. getting all this uh, arranged. So thankful. Yeah. yeah, they're great. The CAG, great. the PA team, they get it done. So to get right into things, do you think you could – Talk about what brought you to the academy initially. Mm, way back. Man, that was a <laughs> long time ago. So, interestingly, my family is not military. Um, okay, same here. Yeah, we were just, like, um, living in the Bay Area, Oakland, California. Berkeley is where we started. But then, um, you know, through a lot of changes in our family, we ended up moving to Richmond, Virginia. And I, that's where I went to high school. And I was going to go to William and Mary University or William and Mary College um, in Williamsburg, Virginia. I was going to play football there, and um, I had actually my guidance counselor at my high school talked me into putting in an application for the Air Force Academy, and I even got my congressional nomination, mm -hmm. and I got an appointment, but I said no, not for me. So I signed with William and Mary. And that's where I was going to go. To then, play football? Or? To play football. Okay. I got a scholarship there, academic institution. I was like, this is good for me. And I had some friends that were going there too. In fact, my best friend was going there. He went on to play pro football and do all kinds of great things. Then the head football coach came to my house, and uh, Ken Hatfield, and he spoke to my parents. And my mom was like, you know, he's inviting you to come out. It's a free trip. You've never been to Colorado. You should just go see it. So I did, and honestly, I came out here on a recruiting trip, and I got a look at the place, and I did have an interest in, in flying. I wanted to be a pilot. Okay. And uh, once I got out here, I was hooked. I mean, I, you know, the mountains, the institution, the flying opportunities, the education. Um, I don't know that I fully knew what I was getting into, but I decided to switch, and my dad made me call the coach at William & Mary and tell him, that I wasn't going to go there anymore, and I still had time. There's a certain date that you have to make your decision by, and I decided to come here to the Air Force Academy. Mm -hmm. So, But my parents, I don't – they didn't even really know. Like, my mom was like, are you sure? I just meant for you to go out there and see it, you know. <laughs> and 
Uh, she was like, are you going to join the army? And I was like, well, no, it's not the army. It's the air force. She's like, it's all the same. You know, she, you know, it was all, it was kind of like that. But mm -hmm. in the end, like now they're 100% in and they, they are so uh, happy that I made this choice. Mm -hmm. And uh, so am I, Yeah, you know, so it's been really good. It was great meeting them. Uh, you brought them out parents weekend. I as did. Well. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of, a couple of my duallys at my table cadated you and your parents, and That's right. we all had a lovely lunch. I actually had a very similar experience like in high school coming to the academy. I had committed to Mercyhurst University to play lacrosse okay. because I was like, okay, I want to play lacrosse. Uh, they got a really good school, like I was saying, kinesiology major. Uh, it had a lot of things going for me. And then the coach reached out to me at a lacrosse tournament. He's like, hey, just come out. Right. Granted, I didn't end up making the team. Uh, but I came out, saw the chapel. I've never seen it again. I saw the chapel. I <laughs> saw, had to bring that up. <laughs> I saw the chapel. I saw Dooley's running the strips. And I've always been a fan of tradition. So I was like, hey, this seems like a really cool place. Rescinded my uh, commitment to Mercyhurst and applied. Wow. All so, right. We had a similar path. Yeah. It sounds cool. like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so your time as a cadet. Mm. I spoke to your classmate and teammate, Moose Irwin. Oh, yeah. Um, he, he made sure to highlight that you guys went 4-0 and against Notre Dame while you were here as cadets. We did. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was awesome. Talented team. I will say, no, no slight against it. That was, a, that was an era in Notre Dame football that I'm sure they would like to forget. But they were some years that they weren't, I would say, at their peak. They were still good, mm. but they weren't at their peak, and we were. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we really crossed paths at a time that was really good for us and really bad for them because mm -hmm. uh, four years we, uh, we beat them, and I got to play in all four games. You know, it was pretty go. cool. As you a freshman know. as well. Yeah, I made the team as a freshman and That's traveled. Huge. I played specialty teams mostly. Mm. And then every now and then they'd stick me in and uh, – so it was good. It okay. was good to beat them. Even yeah. at home, we beat them. So that, at their home. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. At Notre Dame. So that was pretty good. I still see you because, uh, I mean, I usually tend to stay towards the front of the pack at the, the Falcon football games. But I see you up front, and you always look so amped up and, like, high-fiving teammates. Right, uh, right. While, like, when they touch down and doing push-ups with us. Like, you, I, I can't imagine uh, – being in a position like that, I mean, I feel like washed up and I'm two years removed. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, I just wish that life could give us another opportunity, like a new, a new set of joints, a new set of bones so that we could get back at it. Yeah, I, uh, I need some new joints for sure. <laughs> I, my body is sore. I had a lot of injuries when I played football. Mm -hmm. I tore my knee up. I dislocated both of my shoulders mm -hmm. many times. I broke my hand. I broke my thumb. Um, I, I had, uh, I was what you call snake bit for about two years mm -hmm. and I missed parts of both my, um, three degree and, uh, two degree year, my sophomore okay. and junior year from, from injuries. But I, I look back on it and I actually feel look when I look back on it now, I learned some lessons from that about resilience, about persevering, and also about the opportunities to play opportunities to be here because mm -hmm. I was even concerned about my cadet career uh, based on some of those injuries at the time it was the worst thing that ever happened to me but when I look back on it and this is with a lot of things you know you go through some hardship and you realize that it it actually helps you to grow mm -hmm. you know especially when you're willing to fight through it and try to um, overcome some of the difficulties so I 
it was tough at the time, but I look back on it, and those injuries um, help build character, you know, not to be cliche, but but that's what it did for me. So mm-hmm. um, it was interesting. Yeah. yeah. And in my research before this episode, I will touch on it later on, but something having to do with shoulder injuries and getting into into pilot training. Yeah. We'll touch on that soon. Right, right. But to, to continue on uh, t- your time as a cadet, I, I, I scoured your yearbook, 1986 yearbook, mm. and I found your quote. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I found your, your, right, your quote right. under your little, little blurb under your picture. And so I, I have it verbatim here. I'm glad I did it, but I'd never do it again. It's been like climbing a rope that has no end. Um, <laughs> I thought you were supposed to like it here as the years go by, but now that I'm a senior, I guess I heard a lie. Before ending my farewell, there's one more thing that I want to do. I want to thank the Lord, my family, and my friends for getting me through. Lovely poem. Lovely thank you. Poem. Yeah, I have some <laughs> skills there. Except, uh, yeah, you, 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 you got me on that one. So, you know, a lot of people go, man, you know, it sounds like you had such a negative cadet experience. And, and I'm, what, what I was saying there was the place is tough mm-hmm. and it's not supposed to be easy. I had some great times. I mean, there were certainly some memories that I have. And honestly, the older you get, you really, you really remember the good stuff. You mm-hmm. don't. You start to forget the bad stuff, and you really remember the people. My classmates, my teammates. I mean, you talked about Moose Irwin. My roommate and I, Jim Passaro, are like brothers. My teammates that I see almost every weekend mm-hmm. uh, at football games. That that's the stuff that makes you go. I'm so glad I went there. But, you know, when you're going through it, it's tough. Yeah. And when you're a firstie and you're graduating, you're like, I just want to leave and go and get on with my life. And so, yeah, I, I did write that poem, and I was, like, ready to go. But here's the, here's the thing. About uh, three, four years later, I started to think, you know, I, I actually got some good – development and education and a lot of great things came out of the academy about seven to ten years later I was going I couldn't imagine having done something different you Mm -hmm. know because of where I am in my life now about 15 years later I'm going I love that place I want to send my kids there and now I I would do anything for this school I love what I got from this place I love the people the circle of friends that I've had, like I'll never, I couldn't imagine a better group of people that I got to spend four years with and go through the things that we went through. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I did write that poem, but in the moment, that was how I felt. But that moment, those moments change as the years go and you realize just how invaluable this place really is. And that's why I'm here now. Uh, I, I came back here because if there's a purpose for me in life, it's to help people develop and to be their best possible selves. And this place does that better than any place I've ever been in touch with and contact with that I know about. I think all three service academies do a really great job, the main ones, as well as, you know, like the Coast Guard and the Merchant Marine, all the same purpose. But you just you can't get better development than here. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you're you know, it's tough. Oh, yeah. And you know how it is. Yeah, you're like, man, I just want to graduate, <laughs> you know. Um, but it changes and your sight picture of what happened here and what you got here changes as the years go by. Mm. Yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid at all, but actually around this time last year, I had a 
so I didn't get in my first time. I went to I, I was sponsored by the Air Force Academy, got the Falcon Scholarship, went to Marion Military Institute, graduated, oh, nice. then came here. So I was invited to um, the Falcon Foundation Scholarship Dinner that happened at the end of Corona Week mm-hmm. last year, and it's a it's a fabulous dinner that they set up in a hall and you sit around the table there's a social hour and then you sit around the table with a bunch of grads and um it really opened my eyes to see general lorenz up there speaking and it you can just feel the the camaraderie between all of the different graduates that seeing this like from the inside out that they uh they really appreciate the brotherhood and sisterhood that comes with going through this difficult thing alone. So although I, uh, I hated chemistry, especially chemistry two, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's one of my least favorite classes, but, um, you know, opportunities like this, or even the dinner this year is coming up in, in a few weeks. Those are the things that I really look forward to. And I plot on my calendar. I'm like, I am happy to be here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, there are things that, um, if I knew then, what I know now, mm-hmm. I would add a totally different appreciation of some of the things that we do here and that we did here. And, uh, and I would say I wasn't like a bad kid or anything. I, I, I was probably in the, in the middle, you know, of the herd, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of cadets. I had decent grades. I, I participated in my squadron. I was good, you know, on, on my team as an athlete. But um, sometimes you you don't really realize what you have when you have it. Mm -hmm. And it takes a little bit of time of reflection and looking back and a little bit of hindsight. And, and I think most uh, cadets will have that same experience. My classmates do people that I went through here, my roommate, um, Gino, forgive me for this. (laughs) He was in not the middle of the herd. He was, he was a rebel, you know, (laughs) he totally was. But when you see him now, and you see the kind of man he is and the things that he does, you'd never imagine it. Mm-hmm. But this place, and he'll be the first to admit it, this place really helped him to establish himself and to go from here. And he took the things that he learned here and turned them into something pretty incredible. And he is hugely successful. He's in corporate America now doing amazing things. He's back here all the time. He's the guy that you go, he'll never come back to Air guy. He hates this place. And he did when he was a cadet now. He drank the Kool-Aid, as mm-hmm. you just said. He is all in about the Air Force Academy. He's a donor. He comes back for his, you know, uh, he was a baseball player. Mm-hmm. He's just, uh, you never know it, you know. But hindsight does a lot for you, and, it, and the development that you get here does a lot for you as well. Since you are so entrenched in uh, the Academy, like cadets see you everywhere. You're never just hiding out here in Ar- Harmon Hall. You probably have a good sense of, you know, what cadets struggle with nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're pretty vocal as well. Yeah, you are. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. Um, do, can you maybe draw some comparisons between what you see as troublesome for cadets nowadays, whether it's controllable or uncontrollable, either one, versus what you went through? Like, what was uncontrollable and what challenged you sure. as a cadet? Yeah, you know, honestly... Um, I feel like the, the struggles are very similar. Really? Um, I, I really do. Even down to some of the classes, like Comp Sci 110 was a tough <laughs> one for, you know, like all the four degrees would be like, oh my gosh, that's the one. And chem- sec- the second chemistry, oh, yeah, uh, no. you know, that was always a tough one. Um, 
Astro, you know, was always one that, you know, there was a good number of people that, that had struggles in that. So you talk about, when I hear cadets talk about, oh, I got my Astro GR tomorrow, I'm like, man, that sounds familiar. Uh, but, but then things like time management, right? Just, it seemed like you could never mm-hmm. get ahead. You're just, it's, you know, the minute you think that you're ahead of the game, something else happens and you're like, oh man, you're just always trying to keep your head above water and keep moving. But it's about prioritization, it's about time management, but we struggled with that stuff too. Um, that there's a certain level of cynicism, mm-hmm. you know, that I always go, you know, I, I talk to other people and I'm like, what do we do about the cynicism? I'm like, I don't know. They didn't know what to do about it when I was a cadet either because it was there. But I, I always, you know, I wish that there was a way that we could um, sort of eradicate that. And I think you, you want to talk to people and help them understand the why behind it. But it's something that, that I felt like we struggled with um, when I was a cadet here, and I feel like we struggle with it a bit now. But I, I do think that we do a better job now, and even though we're not perfect and we still have a ways to go on this, but explaining the why behind things mm-hmm. and trying to help people understand um, here's, here's the purpose you know, in the end. When I was a cadet, I felt like it was just do it. You, you just do it because we told you to, mm-hmm. and that needs to be good enough. But I think with your generation or, or this generation, people are a lot more um, inquisitive. They want to know why. They want to understand. And not that they're trying to rebel. They just want to understand what's the purpose behind it. I mm-hmm. think that's legitimate. And sometimes if we can't explain the purpose behind something, maybe we shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. And so um, we have to keep working on that. But the cynicism piece is one that that's just something that when I was a cadet, um, I might have even contributed a little bit to that cynicism, um, but now I wish we could really do away with that because when I look back on on it when I was there, it, it was senseless, you know, mm. and, and it really didn't contribute to anything, and a, a better attitude towards some of the things that we were doing would have been helpful. Um, but again, hindsight makes it a bit different. Yeah. Um, I do think one of the struggles we used to have was people would always look at their friends in college and go, man, I want to be doing what they're doing. It's even harder with social media nowadays. I know, because you see all the stuff, and we would go on spring break and see our friends or go home on winter break, whatever it was. Um, But then when I really think about what they were doing, I'm glad I was doing what I was doing here. Mm. You know, like they didn't get to do some of the things and have some of the experiences that, we get to have and even more now, I think, here at USAFA. But, but certainly when I was a cadet, too, there was just so many cool things that we were able to be involved in. And again, looking back on it, I go, man, I, I was fortunate to have been here. And I'm glad that I stayed and that I, that I didn't, even those, those moments of weakness where I thought, okay, I'm leaving, mostly when I was a four degree. But um, I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I stayed here. And, and got what this place can really give to a person. Mm. The good and the bad, this is a, a very special place. It is. It is. So moving on to your experience flying, um, like I mentioned before, I read that you were almost too injured to fly with your shoulder injuries mm-hmm. when you were graduating, but your superintendent, Lieutenant General Winfield Scott Jr., made an exception for you. Um, can you give a little bit more con- context on the situation and yeah, so back then, I like I mentioned, um, I had hurt my shoulders. I dislocated 
uh, each of them about five times, oh. you know, yeah. And it got to where in a football game, I would dislocate my shoulder and I would put it back in on the field and keep yeah. playing. Because after you do it a few times, it's just like, it's yeah. so loose that you can kind of get it back in. Mm -hmm. But then that disqualified me from being a pilot. And um, General Scott was, he was great. And he, I actually knew him, I had met him a few times um, and he was just awesome. And so towards the end, when, um, when I did finally my final grad physical and, I, and I, they said, you are not gonna be flying. And he got wind of that. And I was told that he wanted to see me, but they didn't really tell me what, I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta go see the soup. <laughs> and so I came up in the very office that I sit in every day. I remember exactly where in my office I was seated. And he sat down and he's like, hey, how you doing? He was talking to me a bit. And he goes, hey, I understand you're not qualified for pilot training. I said, yes, sir, my shoulders, you know, dislocations, I won't be able to do it. Ejection seat mm. would, would be a problem. And he said, well, I'm gonna tell you something. Um, I flew F-105s and I flew in Korea and I had to eject one time and I went right through the canopy and my body was just mangled, you know. Um, and I will tell you, the least of my worries would have been a dislocated shoulder. He said, as long as you can reach up and, and for them, you know, reach up and pull or reach down and, and um, um, initiate your seat, that's what you need to be able to do. He said, uh, so why don't you do this? Go, go like this for me. And he had me kind of rotate my shoulder. He demonstrated. He said, go like this and rotated his shoulder around, his right one. And then he did his left one. And he said, do that. And I did it. And he said, okay. And he goes, look, why don't you go back to your room and you'll, you'll probably hear from me or someone else, but just, just sit tight. And so I went back and a couple days later, the hospital commander, uh, the cadet hospital commander calls me and I went down to his office and he said, hey, Cadet Clark, I hear uh, you, you talk to the soup and looking at your uh, records, I, I tell you what, go like this. And he, <laughs> and he had me rotate my shoulders. He's like, go like this. And I rotated my shoulders. They did a couple of x-rays and he goes, look, we're, I think we can get there. And the hospital commander back in those days actually had waiver authority. Okay. And he signed a waiver and I was then slated for pilot training. And wow. it was all because the soup took interest in me and said, you know what, you, you need to go to pilot training. Changed my life. And that's a bit of the inspiration. You know, I, I came here and I know that that superintendent had an impact on my life, but I know that there were so many others mm -hmm. that he helped because he was a one-on-one -on -one kind of guy. You know, he's like, if I can help one, then that's great. If I can help 101, that's even better. If I can help 10,001, it's everything for me. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it's uh, incumbent upon me to give back. Mm -hmm. You know, someone took interest in me, my soup, and, and changed my life. And if I get a chance to do that for any or all of our cadets, I'll do it. And whatever it takes, I'll get it done. Because someone did that for me. It's about paying it forward. And uh, I even visited him. He was uh, in a rest home here. He passed away. Um, last year but I got to spend some time with him and I've visited with him over the years and every time I saw him I thanked him uh, for the opportunity that he gave to me and um, the last time I saw him we were in, a, in the rest home that he was in and we just sat down for about an hour and a half and just talked mm -hmm. about things and and I will say he's a hero to me and and so 
he inspired me way back then as a cadet. And now to have the opportunity to be here, and, and I will and I do, any chance I get, if there's a cadet that I can help to, to move to that next level, uh, whether it's one cadet at a time or a group of cadets or whatever it is, I will do it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm successful a lot of the times, and sometimes I don't, but it's never because I don't try. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think I owe that to, to pay that forward. Yeah, I, uh, an example maybe, I don't know if you were, because he didn't end up becoming a pilot in the Air Force, but uh, Moose Irwin's nephew, Patrick Irwin, he, something was wrong with his eye, and I don't think it was correctable to the point of Air Force qualification, but uh, he ultimately became a pilot, or he's at pilot training at Pensacola for the Navy now. Mm-hmm. So whether it's cross commission, I mean, he was he graduated on your back right. lawn uh, or commissioned. He got his uh, butter bars pinned on at your back lawn, and um, I think it it just goes to show that this place, whether it's you or the community, they do a lot to get people in those absolutely. Positions. And it's not just about the air it's about their dream you know it's about where they want to go and i will help a cadet wherever it is whatever it is that they want to do or that they're trying to do i'm willing to help and uh that that's what we're supposed to do Mm -hmm. you know people come here to achieve to fulfill their destiny and we owe it to them to help them to get there that's what happened to me here that my destiny i mean i'm sitting right here right now because of this place and everything that i've done and will do in my life is because of this place. Mm-hmm. So if I get a chance to give back, I do it. I do it. So moving back to your, your like beyond uh, pilot training, you, you initially went into the EC-135, correct? That's the right. Glass. Yeah. Um, and, but most people know you as a, as a B-1 or a bomber pilot. Right. So how did that transition happen? Yeah, I only, uh, so the, the looking glass was kind of a special duty assignment. And back then, you couldn't get a B-1 right out of pilot training. It was a fairly okay. new aircraft. But the looking glass came with a couple of special opportunities. First, you got a whole bunch of hours because it was an airborne command post, airborne 24-7 for like 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so to be a pi- uh, co-pilot on that was, was kind of a privilege. You also flew T-38s as a, a companion trainer. So, like, on the weekends, me and another co-pilot would just take a T-38 out and go fly around the country. It's best deal I ever <laughs> had in my life. And I was single back then. I didn't have, you know, any other responsibility other than to fly an airplane. And I got so many hours just flying T-38s. And then at the end of that assignment, you generally got your choice of where you were going to go next. So I wanted to be one, and, and I was able to get that. I put in for it. And got picked up, and uh, so I I've, I spent a pretty short amount of time in the looking glass, and then most of my career was in the B one. Okay. So it was awesome. So it was a, a pretty cool start. You know, I I flew in a in a year and a half or just under two years. I got two thousand hours. Holy. Which is crazy. Yeah. You know that half my hours I got half of the hours that I have I got in about two years. <laughs> You know, because I flew and I would fly other people's shifts. They go, oh, man, it's, you know, it's a holiday and I want to spend it with my family. I was like, I'll do it, <laughs> you know, or oh, my wife wants me to take her out. Of t- I'll, I'll fly her. I would just fly, fly, fly. And it was it was awesome. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah, I actually recently interviewed um, a U-28 pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Phil Miller up in the math department. Mm-hmm. And he talked about uh, just briefly how. I mean, he didn't choose it, but having a family later 
and being uh, single for the you know lieutenant and junior captain years of your career can pay huge dividends on uh, your I guess flight hours and flight progression. Yeah. Well, so just for my own safety, I'll say the best <laughs> thing that ever happened to me was getting married to my wife Amy. All right, I said it. However, as a single guy, you know, in the situation that I was in, uh, it it paid huge dividends to just be able to focus and fly, and I loved it. I mean, I just, flying was what I wanted to do. That was my dream, and I was one of those people that go, man, I can't believe they pay me to do this, mm -hmm. you know, and it just uh, really got me set off in a in a good trajectory and it gave me a lot of experience, which helped me to be a better B-1 pilot, mm -hmm. frankly. All those T-38 hours um, just, you know, added to my airmanship and my experience. And, and frankly, uh, I, I attribute a lot of that to the success I had in the B-1. Yeah. Yeah. So we could probably go on for hours, I'm sure. I mean, I've heard a few of your, your B-1 stories. Yeah. But this isn't the, the main focus of this episode, so unfortunately we have to move on. I'd love to have you on again to talk specifically uh, about your B-1. Anytime, <laughs> Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying the episode. I just wanted to take a second to tell you about my good friend I grew up playing hockey with. His name's Jake Tebow. During my freshman year parents weekend, I was notified that Jake got into a severe hockey accident where he was paralyzed from the waist down with little hopes of walking again. Through the help of many generous people and a no-quit attitude, he's been able to make great progress, but he still needs your help. If you want to check out his story and donate, his website is tbo14tough.com. That's T-B-O, the number 14tough.com. Or check out his Instagram, jake.tebow, to support his progress. Thanks. This means an absolute ton. Now back to the episode. But um, to move on to your command experience, because, I mean, um, it's not every day that I get to talk to a general who's experienced the most tactical and the most strategic uh, command decisions. You've seen basically every level that there is mm -hmm. from strategic, tactical, like I just said, how did it feel slowly moving away from making these on the ground, getting your hands in the weeds decisions to doing what you did where, you know, it's, you can see it more trickle down. It's not right away. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I think, um, the air force is, and, and really the military in general, the way that we do things, um, is very much a stair step approach, right? you command at that tactical level and you master that if you will or you you understand it at at um at its depth because you're in it right but then that prepares you for that next level and so when you go to the next level because of the previous experience you've had you're ready and so every step of the way you're sort of pulling from the experiences that you had before mm -hmm. so it's it's very gradual the way that you move up and the way that you step up so it's not like um, there's always a learning curve, you know, every time, every every command you have, every opportunity you have, it, no matter how much experience, there's a learning curve there. And you, you have to rely on your team and you, um, you know, you, you succeed based on how you work with your team. But you also use your experience. You have to rely on that. Um, I will say 
doesn't matter what level of command you are in, it's all about the people. Mm -hmm. And that there's an old adage that says, if you take care of your people, they'll take care of the mission. That is true at every level of command, whether strategic or tactical. And um, it's something that was uh, all of the people who were, I would consider mentors, um, stressed that. And the people that I looked up the most to lived that. And mm -hmm. they actually employed that in the way that they led. And I, I agree with that, and I try to employ that in the way that I command now, but it doesn't even matter what level you're at, that is the key. Take care of the people around you, help give them the guidance, help with their personal lives, whatever you can do, but make sure that they're in a position because they're the ones that are gonna execute it. You're the commander, but you are not gonna take care of the whole mission yourself. It is just not gonna happen. It's about the people around you and the team that you create and the team that you cultivate. So that's key at every level. It does get more interesting and more complex and sometimes even more political the higher up you go. Mm -hmm. um, and you just have to understand that bigger picture. And that's, that's kind of a key. Um, but again, like I said, the, as you stair step your way up, you start to understand that picture. And when you get to the level that you're at, you've, you've been well prepared um, to do it. So I've always been grateful to the Air Force, to my leaders for ensuring that I was ready for whatever step um, that we were going to take. But it's also incumbent upon you um, to prepare yourself, you know. And, and I always say I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. I, I'm never the smartest person in the room or the, you know, never the most experienced, but I'm always open to learning and to people giving me advice, whether they were younger, older, whatever rank they are. Um, I always, always am open to people trying to help me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I take it willingly. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is always um, latch on to a great senior NCO, um, whether you know a chief, a senior NCO, uh, because they will help you to stay connected. Um, that mission, people uh, sort of relationship, having a senior NCO with you um, that, that you trust and that uh, trust you uh, is invaluable at any level of command. So um, there's, there's a lot of things that are parallel or that are very similar regardless of the command. They just get a little bit bigger, a little more political. Um, you are a little further removed from the mass of people, but there's still people that, that are critical to getting the mission done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear that echoed pretty much from anyone that I talk to about being a good officer is that latch onto that senior NCO because oh, they yeah. have the answers that you obviously don't because you're new, at least as a lieutenant. Even if you're not new, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you might think you know, um, but when you have uh, a great chief or, you know, a great senior master sergeant or NCO period, um, they will keep it real and, and make sure that you're keeping it real too. Yeah. And that, that's critical as a commander. One thing that I can tell that I think unanimous, unanimously cadets agree upon is that you are pretty present in the wing. Um, and I think that's a great technique to engage in, to be a good leader, even though you're however many levels separated from the cadets. Do you have any other maybe techniques or TTPs that enhance the trust and respect that your um, subordinates have as you, as you kind of become more removed from them? Yeah, I think um, first, you know, I, I would 
I wish I could be more connected at, at all levels, you know, with from cadets to our staff and faculty to our coaches. Um, but what I don't want to do is lock myself away behind my computer, which I could do, answering emails all day, um, going to meetings all day. First, it would drive me crazy, mm-hmm. right? I, I would go ape if I did that. Mm-hmm. It would just, I, I couldn't handle it. But it also gives you some perspective, right? You, you are talking to people out there and you get little tidbits and nuggets and, and you got to pull that in so that you are um, connected, that you do understand some of the issues. You're never going to get everything, but you can make connections from what you've heard out there to connections of what you're hearing from your subordinate commanders or the dean or the, you know, the mission element leads. Um, but it's just all going into that calculus for things that you have to make decisions on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's very important. And you're, you can't ever get enough connection, right? But here's the, here's the other thing. When I get to spend time with cadets, it just, it, it like inspires me. It brightens my day. I love the energy. It's Cadets are funny. I mean, you know, sometimes it's funny and it's scary at the same time. But <laughs> I just... It just helps me to know my purpose mm-hmm. and why I'm here and why I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, that helps me to get through the day. So part of it is just about my own personal well-being, but part of it is about my my professional duty to understand what's going on in my command. Mm-hmm. And so if I just if I just hit away and try to get everything I could from email, it'd never work. So you always got to connect, you know, no matter what level of command you're in, go see your units, uh, talk to your folks, get to know them, um, be a part of them and understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, You got to have a lot of data points. And I I just try to give myself every opportunity to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I actually remember last year while at the soups dinner, I was indulging in some pulled pork and you came and talked to our table and we had raised the issue because it was a pretty glaring issue at the, t- the time, the Vandy uh, washing machine. The washers and dryers. La- yeah, oh the my laundry. gosh. Yeah, and that was, a, that was a time where cadets were vocal to you where, I mean, it's not often that cadets just get to voice their, their qualms about the cadet life to the, the superintendent, the person who has the most power over this place. But that, I think that was a really cool venue for us. And I mean, not even like, a month or two later, we got new machines in there. Yeah. That was awesome. So uh, thank you. That started a conversation that, <laughs> I mean, we had the conversation. I remember, uh, and you weren't the only one that brought that up. Um, I usually, what I usually ask when I go to a hotel, I go, okay, tell me what's the best thing that's going on <laughs> and what's the worst thing that's going on. And washer and dryer at that time was top of the list. Oh, yeah. And so we started having some discussions and, and, uh, you know, put, uh, I guess, a path to getting them changed out and to, to where we needed to go, put that into place, and uh, got it done. And now they're broken again, is what <laughs> I'm hearing. So, uh, yeah. They need to so, stop slamming those doors. I know, man. Or I think people are, like, getting in them and riding them or something because <laughs> they just – I'm like, how do we keep breaking them? Uh, but the fact is, when there's problems out there, mm-hmm. you know, as a commander, you want to know. I mean, you want to know what's going on so that you can do something about it. It's your job, mm. right? And the best way for me to know, you know, the dean's not going to know if washers and dryers are broken. I mean, there's not that many people in Fairchild Hall, you know, that are really that concerned about that. Um, 
but the way we get it and she does it, the commandant, athletic director, we all talk to cadets, hear what's going on. Um, we talk to our coaches and our staff and faculty, hear what's going on, and we make decisions a lot of times based on things that we hear, um, you know, from the from the people. Mm-hmm. So it's good. So you've shared a lot of stories with the cadet wing, whether it's at uh, a noon meal or any other time that you're around a microphone, you always have some inspiring story. Do you think you could share a time that was either challenging or rewarding during your time at any level of command that mm. maybe the cadet wing hasn't heard yet? Man, I've told you guys a lot of them, challenging or rewarding. Um, I've had Whichever so many. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll be honest. Most of my experiences as commander have been completely rewarding. I, I have... It, it, command is the best job. I don't care if you're commanding a flying squadron, cyber space, whatever it is, security forces, intel, it doesn't matter. Command is just awesome because you have a chance. You are at the position where you impact both mission and people, I think, to the at the perfect balance, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I really love any opportunity to do that. Um, but sometimes it, it does come with challenges and sometimes, you know, mistakes or, you know, you get in that gray area. That's when, that's where you make your money though, mm-hmm. is in the gray area. Sometimes it's black and white, right? It's easy to make a decision, but real commanders and, and, and leaders, you earn your money when you have to operate in the gray. And I remember this one time, I'll, I'll go back to squadron command cause that, that was always my favorite and being able to command in combat to me, like, I mean, being here is a highlight for me, but that is also something I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. You know, being the soup, I'm, I'll never forget, right? Never imagined I'd be here. But taking a B-1 unit into combat was just something I was a, a privilege and an honor I'll never forget. But there was this one time early in, the, uh, in combat where I had, to, um, uh, I had to get some extra crews. Um, I had um, about 18... Um, crews and a B-1, four people, two pilots, two Wizzos. And I had to get about four extra crews. And so there was uh, 16 or so people that I didn't really know, mm-hmm. but they were augmented to our squadron so that we could fly this the the ATO, the air tasking order that we had to fly. And, um, and I mixed the crews up and I put, I didn't want these crews to be uh, separate from our unit. So I, I intermingled those 16 people in with my crews so that they were, we were all mixed up as one unit. Cause I didn't want there to be like these separate cultures like or clicks. anything. I wanted us to be one team. And so we all came in and we had our squadron had a certain way of preparing for combat. And we, we took it very seriously. It was not about if we go to combat, it was about when we go to combat. And that's always how I trained them. And we took it very seriously, you know, and, and I think we were well prepared. And so this other unit came in and I, and I had these guys in and I mixed, uh, or I had one crew that went up on the second night in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And it was pretty hot that night. They were, there was a lot of um, anti-aircraft artillery, a lot of surface-to-air missiles that were getting fired. And uh, on that first night that this crew flew, and they had one of these other guys who I didn't, I didn't know him. And had I known him better, I might have waited before putting him right into it, you know. 
Um, but I but I had him fly with one of our crews, and they got I mean they were getting like all kinds of activity, a lot of uh, AAA, a lot of SAMs, but they had to get their bombs on target. And there came this point where this guy, I, I wasn't there, but he basically froze up, right? And he just couldn't operate. He was a whizzo, and he couldn't get his bombs on target. And so one of the other whizzo had to work both consoles. And fortunately, he was an instructor. I did have the foresight to put an instructor with him because I wasn't completely sure, mm -hmm. um, but that guy um, worked both consoles, which is not ideal because he had to unstrap and he had, you know, we don't want that in an ejection seat, but he had to to get the bombs out. Um, so the crew got their bombs on target, they came back, um, and before I even knew what had happened, that one individual came in, he took his wings off and he put his wings on my desk and said, sir, I'm done. I don't want to fly anymore. I don't want to fly ever again. Wow. He basically turned his wings into me. And, you know, I'm a squadron commander, lieutenant colonel, and I was just like, what happened? And he said, sir, I don't want to talk about it right now, but I'm just telling you I don't want to fly again. Now, we're in the desert in Oman, and I'm just like, okay, hold on a minute. So I got the rest of the crew without him, and then they told me what happened. And he did freeze up. And then there was this groundswell among all the crew that we should Article 15 this guy and send him home because he didn't do his duty. And now he's turning in his wings and refusing to fly combat. And so now I'm in a position where I'm going, wait a minute. Is, oh, that, is that what I want to do? That's a gray area. Right? So I'm in a gray area and the crew, I mean, I had people come into my office and say, sir, Everyone's wanting to know, my flight commanders, what, what, are, what are you going to do? And uh, I basically, uh, long story short, um, I couldn't find it in myself to give this guy an Article 15. I did send him to mental health, and we had some mental health providers. And they basically told me that he just, it was, uh, they call it a manifestation of... Uh, gosh, I can't, manifestation of apprehension, Okay. right? So it, it's just that the whole situation just physically manifested in him not being able to do what he needed to do. And so uh, I got him the help he needed. I took him off the flying schedule. There was plenty of other people that were ready to go mm -hmm. that wanted to fly. And so I sent them out there. But there was a lot of people that said, so you're telling us that someone refuses to fly in combat and that's okay. I said, no, it's not okay, but I don't know that he deserves an Article 15. Sometimes people have issues that we don't know about, and I'm going to get him the help he needs, and then we'll go from there. And in the end, um, the guy got his wings back. I, I never, I mean, you know, I couldn't really take his wings. He took them off and put them on the table, but um, I didn't send him home. He got the help he needed. He didn't fly any more combat, um, and when we all went home, I explained to his commander, you know, what, what had happened. And, you know, they, they worked with him, and the guy went on, and, and he uh, completed his career. But there was a lot of disgruntled uh, crew members on my team that were like, man, he should have – it should have been worse than that, you know, refusing to go into combat. Did you face any of a rift 
like after that happened from no, people I, under you? In the end, I pulled everyone together and I explained why I did okay. what I did. I said, listen, I know there's a lot out there, but here's, here's my, uh, my thought process and here's why I did what I did. Um, and, you know, in the end, it, it, I still think there were people that disagreed with that, but there were enough people that understood and, uh, and, and we were able to move past it. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, wasn't a total rip. In fact, we, we had a great combat deployment. We even went on a second combat deployment. It, it didn't break the squadron apart, but it was just one of those moments that I, uh, you know, cause I always prided us on being a tight unit. We were, you know, very uh, cohesive and were able to perform well. I loved my squadron, the Thunderbirds, um, but that was a moment where I felt like, okay, I, I gotta hold it together here. We're in combat, we're flying. I have one guy that's having an issue. I can't ignore him, but I also gotta hold the rest of the squadron together. So it was a, a couple weeks of, of a bit of a challenge, yeah. but uh, in the end, it was, uh, it was still one of the most memorable uh, experiences of my life. And we're still a tight knit. In fact, they were all at my house about eight months ago because um, one of them retired and, and the whole squadron came back. You know, it was pretty that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a great area if I ever heard one. I, I guess that's what we're being prepared for that's here at it. the Academy. You know, it's a gray, gray area. And, you know, if I would given them an Article 15, it, it would have been justified and, you know, either way. Mm-hmm. But just for me as a commander, that's what seemed to be the right thing. And I, I weighed it and wrestled with it. But that's that's what leaders get paid to do, mm-hmm. you know. And we talk about developing leaders of character. It's about the character that you develop. And, and that's what helps you to make those decisions, you mm-hmm. know. It's what where your internal foundation makes you determine what's, what's right at a given time. Because there's no textbook answer, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah. Moving on to your, your experience c- commanding at the academy. So you were nominated by President Trump. That was probably a pretty cool experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've been close enough. Uh, my cadet uh, squadron 15 was the, the honor squadron. So we sat behind President Biden at the graduation for the class of 2023. Right. Pretty cool. Didn't get to shake his hand. But uh, I must, it must have been a really cool honor to you know, receive some sort of position from the highest – uh, ranking member of the United States. I don't know if that's the, the correct way to put it. No, it is. <laughs> Fun fact, Corm, I'll tell you something, I, you know, not to be bragging, but I'm like Forrest Gump. I, since Ronald Reagan was president, I've met every president Holy all the way up except President Trump. I never got to meet him, you okay. know, shake his hand. Mm-hmm. But every other president all the way up to President Biden, I've met and I have a picture with him. And it's like, you know, Forrest Gump just kind of stumbles into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, here I am, and there's the president. And I take a picture, and, and it, you know, it's pretty pretty funny. But I will tell you, uh, that never gets old, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, regardless of your politics, you got to set that aside. Yeah. You're talking to the leader of the free world. And, and uh, it, the fact that every fourth year we get to have a president come here says something about our institution you mm-hmm. know it's pretty cool oh yeah how do you think uh your time as a commandant changed uh the way that you look at your your role as a superintendent where whereas some superintendents only work as a superintendent you know what i mean yeah um so i love being the commandant because i i was a, a lot closer to the mission you know we were talking about you get further removed from the mission 
Um, and my mission was leading the cadets, you know, mm -hmm. leading the cadet wing and working with the cadet wing staff to help them do their jobs to move the wing forward. And I had a lot more opportunity to engage with cadets, AOCs, AMTs, and I loved it, right? It was a pretty cool job. And when I came to this job, I had one of my friends who was also the commandant. He goes, hey, man, if you take that job, you got to know it's going to be different mm -hmm. than when you were the commandant. And it might even taint your memory <laughs> as being the commandant. I was like, no, it's going to be great. Uh, yeah, it's a lot different. Now, it doesn't taint my memory. Uh, I loved being the commandant, but I loved being the soup too, but for different reasons. Um, when I was a commandant, I felt like I had a great opportunity to impact the cadet wing directly, right? Now as the soup, I feel like I have a great opportunity to impact USAFA directly. It's a different kind of impact, and you kind of alluded to it before, there's different levels, and this is definitely a more strategic level. Mm -hmm. The people that I have to talk to, the people that I work with, I, I consider commandant, I was more down and in at USAFA. As the superintendent, I'm more up and out. My engagements are with uh, people that um, aren't here at USAFA. Um, they're in D.C. They're around the country. They're in different places, different universities that I engage with. Um, it's just a different, um, a different job and a different purpose. Um, but in both cases, though, I know, and we talked about this before, my purpose is still cadets. It is still to make sure that every one of our cadets has every opportunity to develop and be the absolute best of their best version of themselves that they can possibly be. And um, whether I'm the commandant and more down and in or the soup up and out, it's still my job and it's still my mission. So I take satisfaction in that and knowing my mission, it's just not as fun. Mm -hmm. the, the up and out is less fun. It's a little more bureaucratic. Um, it's a little more, um, I would say, administrative maybe than, than being the, the calm, but no less important. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and it's a different challenge, I would say. Um, but I still love our school. I love what it did for me. I love what it does for others. And it, it's just a different way for me to impact. But it's certainly more political. It's certainly more, um, uh, I would say, challenging at times because mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're at the whims of different opinions and different viewpoints from people from all across the world uh, or across the country um, because everybody loves the academy, right? Everybody has an interest in it. Every congressman, every senator, everybody in the Pentagon, they all care about what's going on at the academy. And every time something's wrong, it's my fault. And so that makes it kind of tough. But when you're the commander, you know what? It is your fault. Mm -hmm. It's your responsibility. And so it, it, it's, uh, there's a lot there, but um, I still love it. Mm -hmm. I do. I wish I had more time with you, sir. I got, I got a lot of things um, that I want to talk about, including this little tidbit from Moose Irwin. I think we'll have to, to round out the, the, the commanding at the academy part with this, but he, he mentioned 133 cadets were hospitalized during your hell week. I should have I brought this up at the beginning of the oh, episode. Yeah. But as someone who has you know, once been in charge of training, and I'm sure you still have somewhat of a say in it, what are the main differences you see today versus – 
how we trained back then? Yeah, that that's a great question, Corm. So, first of all, the class of 1986 had the toughest recognition of any class <laughs> in the history of the Air Force Academy. So I just want to get that on the record right now. 86 kicks, that's us. Um, but that our recognition was so – it was kind of crazy because it was – I think we did it in the May, June – or May, late May time frame. So you were duly all year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, they, it, it went pretty much the whole year. And then in late May is when we did recognition. And usually, especially back then, it was a little bit cooler generally in May – but that those four days, it was crazy hot. It was like 97 degrees or something like that. They did not have plans for water. They didn't uh, have plans for um, EMTs or medics out there. And, but the plans for recognition were just as crazy as they always were, right? And uh, we just had a lot of people... And then, well, let me back up. And then at Mitch's, they fed us these uh, gyros, right, with the with that uh, tzatziki sauce, okay, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that wasn't probably the best thing that, <laughs> yeah, that no. we could have eaten. And so that's what we had at Mitch's, and they were all like, "Eat your food. It's hot out there. You need to be ready. Drink your water." So everybody ate it all. And then people were like, throwing up, sick, yeah. and they're like throwing up, and it was, but it was crazy. And so it was mostly, it was like 133, but it was like heat exhaustion, dehydration. Um, and so a lot of people had to get pulled out. And some, you know, periodically, you know, they pull them out, give them some water, whatever, let them rest. But then some of them, I mean, there's people getting IVs and all that kind of stuff. So it was pretty, uh, it was pretty intense. But, you know, in the end, honestly, I, I joke with cadets and say, yeah, Spirit Hill wasn't there, but we buried, like, <laughs> like 200 of our classmates on Spirit Hill, so that's a monument to them. It's not true, all right? But, um, yeah, so I don't think it was necessarily that, that Hell Week was that much tougher. It's mm -hmm. just that I don't think that the planners were really prepared for the conditions that we okay. ended up being in, <laughs> and so it, it kind of jacked some people up. Yeah. But it was, it was bad. Um, but, you know, recognition is always kind of tough. Um, I do think that the way that we trained back then was just a little bit different, but not that much different. You know, classes come back and say, oh, it's so much easier now. Not really. I mean, it's not that much easier. It's not that much different. Um, we still had stuff like the assault course, the obstacle course. We still did the PT the same way. The PFT was the same. You know, like all these things are just the same. It's just we, we kind of handle it just a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't see, like, huge differences in how we did it back then. I think, though, the big difference, though, in how we train and develop people, back then it was an attrition model, right? Okay, it was, so it was a filter rather Yeah, than you know, it was like, okay, we'll just do it, and then we'll kick people out. They'll wash out. They'll quit. Mm -hmm. They'll fail out, whatever. And that was – the idea and and everyone that survived was trained well enough to go and be a lieutenant now um and we have evolved to this is more of a development model it's like okay we bring people in now and we develop them mm -hmm. rather than trying to kick them out let's try to develop them and try to help them to become that leader of character that we need them to be and a lot of 
older folks just can't get their arms around that. They're like, why aren't you kicking more people out? Why isn't there, you know, greater attrition in, in BCT? It must be too easy, mm. you know? Well, no, it's not. It's not more, it's not easier. It's just that we don't quit on a person after their first, you know, the first time they fall out, we're not saying, okay, you're weak, go home. It's all right, let's, let's help this person along. Let's get their classmates, their teammates, the faculty, Ricondo, whatever it is. Same in academics. Let's have an academic success center where we can maybe help people. Mm-hmm. Let's give them probation. There wasn't a whole lot of probation back in the day, right? It was sink or swim, mm-hmm. you know, which uh, to me is not the way to do it. You know, it's let's get people and, and let's meet them where they are and then get them where they need to be. And that developmental model where sometimes you got to give people a second chance. You know, now there's some things that don't deserve a second chance, right? There's crimes. There's, there's just some things that we can't tolerate. But most things, we can work with people. And if they have a desire and they're willing to accept that, that help and that development, we can get them there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the old days, we had it a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, because there's some, I have some great friends uh, that, that left here. In fact, one guy just got an email. He's like the CEO of some oil exploration company. He's like a multimillionaire. He got, he washed out when we were four degrees for academics. Right. Look and this now. guy, I don't know, look at him now because he went to a college, he did great. And now he's just, he's crushing it. Yeah. Now the path, it worked out for him, but the air force lost out mm. because if we had taken him rather than kicking him out for academics, and giving him that that chance of act pro, uh, you know, which we did have probation, right? But it was just a different way that we we approached it. Um, if we had kept him and, and worked with him a little bit more, Huge who knows who knows yeah. what what that guy could have done for the Air Force? It worked out for him, and I'm glad, you know, because for the country at large, uh, he's you know he's doing great things. Mm-hmm. But the developmental model and working with people, I think, is the way to go. Um, and people that went through it back in the old days, it's hard for them to understand that because it wasn't, it wasn't really that way back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it, we got to measure that, right? You got to sort of temper it, and you, you can't accept anything. There's some things that we just can't accept. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually, I think if we work with people, it is hard to get in here. People have to have the skill, the talent, the aptitude. Um, most people that we bring in here are fully capable of graduating from this place if we work with them. And they're fully capable to go out and be great officers and lead uh, in the Air Force and Space Force. So I like the way that we're moving and the, the approach that we take to development, mm-hmm. I think is better for the country, better for our cadets, for sure. Yeah. So it, but it's different, you know, it's different than it was back then. I hope that gives some some cadets some hope. In consideration of your time, there's a lot more things. Maybe we're going to have to do a part two. But you not too long ago announced at the beginning of the semester that this would be your last semester. You were, I think you said that you wanted to finish the semester, that people were trying to kick you out. But you said, no, I'm going to stay until and finish with the 20, or finish at least uh, with the 23.5ers and finish out, go to the, go through December. And there's a couple things that I want to, to bid you farewell with, you know, see what's going on at the academy with new construction, 
I want to know what you're doing after retiring. Um, maybe a book review. Well, there, but there's one thing that um, I need to make sure that I get on because I promise my friends. You were speaking about food and recognition, eating stuff. And recently there was a, a meme posted um, regarding you and your cooking abilities. Oh. And I, had, I wasn't sure if you had seen it yet. But it is an absolute masterpiece, and I would like to do a meme review with you, if that's okay. A meme review. Yes. Okay, let's do that. All right. So I don't know if you've seen this yet, but. <laughs> oh, man. That is funny. I, I was laughing so hard the first time I saw that. I had seen the pictures that you posted right, of right. Uh, the calzones you made that night. And oh, man. The that is, is creative. too good. I know. Oh, my goodness. That's funny. Let me cook. He throws yeah, it down in the I kitchen. Know, I know. But, okay, so let me just, I, I want to say this. So here's how this, my timeline went down. My actual retirement was September, right? September 23rd. Okay. Uh, that's my three years. That was the agreement when mm -hmm. I came in three years. I asked to, I wanted to extend um, to June of 24. And that's actually my 38 years, which for a three star, that's your high year tenure. So you, you have to retire after 38 years. Okay. So I just wanted to stay. I was like, let me just stay. I want to graduate with a class of 24. You know, I want to be with, we came in together. I want to finish together. And they're like, well, we're going to let you stay. We'll extend you one semester. I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Let's <laughs> just do the whole thing. And, but, you know, there's always there's other people that they want to, you know, that the air, bigger Air Force needs to bring up. So they were like, look, there's things, you know, politics and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so 5 January, that's your, that's your new date. So I argued a little bit. And then finally I was like, okay, I'll take what I can get. Mm -hmm. And so... Then, um, and I'm being totally transparent here, the secretary said, hey, listen, if we don't have your replacement named by January 5th, will you stay longer? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> so now I'm still, January 5th is still my date. That is the approved date. But I am, I told him I'll stay as long as you'll keep me here. You might drag your feet on that. I'll drag my feet <laughs> as much as I can. But again, also there's other people, you know, cause as long as I'm in, there's someone else that's not getting promoted mm -hmm. and that's not able to, to move in the direction that the air force wants them. Um, I'm an old, old three star. In fact, I think I'm the oldest three star in the air force, um, at 38 coming up on 38 years. So I'm, some people might say dead weight at the top, uh, you know, but uh, I do understand the need to move people mm -hmm. along because, you know, there's other people that are behind you waiting for their opportunities to do things. So I, you know, I've come to terms with it. I will stay as long as I possibly can. But right now, 5 January is my date. Um, if it's 6 January, that's better. <laughs> if it's, you know, 30 May, that's even That'd be better. awesome. You know, but... I will stay as long as they will allow me because I love the cadets here. I love you guys, whoever's listening. Our team is just incredible. Um, and, you know, there's uh, always issues or, or things that people might say could be a little bit better. But I will tell you, the people, staff, faculty, coaches, 
our mission element leads are the most passionate people that I've come across about their mission in the whole since I've been in the Air Force. I haven't been around better, and I'm proud to be a part of this team. Um, I love our school. Uh, you mentioned construction and things like that. I've been very aggressive on those kinds of things because I want to see us continue to evolve. So I'm like, let's build it. Let's get the money. You know, I talked about up and out. I'm always fighting to get us more and more and more because in the end, it all boils right back down to our cadets. Best people in the world, they, you, have made sacrifices to come here, and we owe you our best. And, and I'm committed to doing that till the day I leave. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it's past January 5th, but if that's all I got, I will sprint to the finish, and we'll, we'll keep on doing everything I can to make us better uh, till the day I leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate, and I'm sure all the cadets appreciate everything that you do on behalf of them to make their lives better, whether it's more difficult, but ultimately paying dividends in the long run. Uh, so that's a thank you to you. To round out this episode, maybe give some parting shots or anything that you want to, to leave the cadets with, whether it's advice or anything of that nature. Yeah, you know, my advice is, um, you know, we talked a little bit about cynicism in the beginning, and, and I get it. You know, the, we have some amazingly smart cadets who question things, who ask why, and that is really good. It is it's what we need, critical thinkers, you know, people that are willing to, to lean in and understand the why, and then to question it if it's not right. Mm -hmm. but, but don't let that cloud your vision of what is going on here. Don't let that... Um, put a, a damper on your experience here at the academy. You know, sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta accept things and, and keep moving. Not to say that you shouldn't question, not to say that you shouldn't think about how we could do it better, but don't let it make your experience um, worse because of it. Allow yourself to enjoy everything that this place has. And the best thing to enjoy are your friends, mm -hmm. your teammates, your classmates, your squadron mates, the people here are the best you're going to ever be around. And I mean that. Um, enjoy that. Take it in. Just, just, I don't know, be present here in this, uh, in this environment that you're in because it really is special. Mm -hmm. and, and you'll realize that more and more. But the more you engage and, um, and bond with your team, the better it is and, and the more you'll remember it um, when you're old like me. So just, just take it all in. Um, and be present here at USAFA. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. One final thank you for your time. Horm, you're the man. You're pretty good at this. <laughs> I, I just like to talk to people, sir. All right. Well, you do a good job. Thank you. You do a good job. So uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity here. And I appreciate, you know, your line of questioning and everything. It, it's, uh, I think it's, it's helpful, you mm -hmm. know, the kinds of things that you're asking and the kinds of discussions you're having. So uh, keep doing that. Thank good. you. Yeah, we'll... Uh, We'll see you out there cutting someone else's hair. It won't be mine, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he, if any of you listeners, he was cutting Chief Kwiatkowski's hair. And, uh, At the Navy game last yeah, year. Yeah, I was like, holy mackerel, Chief, you are brave. He did a good job, but you wouldn't <laughs> touch my hair, man. No way. I actually have to give a shout-out to Demo. I'm sure you've gotten many Oh, yeah, requests. Demo the Barber. Demo cuts yeah. my hair over in Vandy, and he I talk to him every time, and he's always like, dude, man, got to get know. to soup in my chair. Right. 
I'll, I'll go by there. <laughs> I don't mean to there. put too much pressure on it. you, sir, but there's a lot of demand. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, thanks, Corm. I appreciate your time and uh, keep it up. Keep Thank it you, up. sir. All right.